All right, if you will take your Bibles out, please. Turn to Hebrews chapter 6. Join me in standing, if you would, out of reverence for the reading of God's Word. <clears throat> this will also be, I think, the, the last... We're going to be in Hebrews for a few weeks, um, maybe as many as six. But I haven't quite got a clear picture on what we're doing for, for the Christmas season yet, which is unusual. Um, I, we may launch out of Hebrews. I don't know. We'll, we'll see. God hasn't been completely clear with me. So, Hebrews chapter 6, beginning at verse 11. We desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would allow us to be a people whose vision, whose heart, whose mind, whose very being is focused completely on the day of your coming and the day of our being with you. But Father, even as we do that, let us dwell in this moment with the hope that commends that. God, let us dwell in this moment knowing that that hope has real-world implications and that it's given for the people that are here. God, hope is such a precious and powerful thing. And it is a thing that is lacking in our culture so profoundly. So, Father, I just pray that you would give us a clear vision of what it means to have hope and what it means to live hope and what it means, Father, for those around us to see that hope in us. God, over all that we do, transform us by the grace and the glory of Christ and transform us by the hope that you plant in us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we've been talking about hope. Last week we talked about hope that was false, falsely grounded and falsely rooted. Um, people who hope in their works or hope in their birthright or hope in their, their family traditions or hope in their church memberships or hope in whatever they might hope in and how all of those things bring no real hope at all. So I want to finish the thought this morning and I want to carry it through to help us understand why God gives us hope and why hope is such a powerful thing. There, there are some people who ask, well, why mess, why mess around with hope? Why would God not just give us what he's promised and we'll just get over this whole hope thing and we'll, we'll have it in front of us right now? And it's a fair enough question. So it's worth answering. Hope is, is a fruit that is produced in our lives. It's something that comes as we diligently pursue and acquire wisdom. It is the sure and certain promise of God that has not yet been manifested in us. And, and so as we think about what hope really brings, what it brings is a knowledge of God. The more that we hope, the more that we understand what hope is, the more that our lives are focused on what God has promised, the more we begin to have a relationship with Him that is rooted and anchored in who He is. Because his promise reveals to us his character. It reveals to us his nature. It's important for us to understand that hope, as biblically understood, is as real to us as if we held the promised thing already. This is not merely wishful thinking. It's not that we, we, we spit in one hand and hope in the other and see which one fills up first, as the world will say. Because hope is, is a certainty. It's a reality. It's just not present yet. We are not the source of our hope. God is the source of our hope. And our hope is rooted in His nature, in His power, and in His person. And it is this sure and certain hope which sustains us in the midst of whatever we face in this life. Psalm, verse, Psalm chapter 20, verses 7-9 through 9 says, Some trust in chariots, some in horses. But we will remember the name of the Lord our God. They have bowed down and fallen, but we have risen and stand upright. Save, Lord. May the king answer us when we call. Now, the king he's referring to is Christ. He's not referring to any king on earth. And this is an important consideration for us because everybody's going to tell you that you have to trust in something. You have to trust in somebody. There's no shortage of, um, of things that the culture demands that we trust. 
They tell us to trust the science. They tell us to trust the government. They tell us to trust in the goodness of all mankind. But the truth is, is that none of these things are worthy of trust. All of them are broken and corrupt. All of them are driven by wrong principles, wrong assumptions, wrong motives, and wrong goals. There is only one that is worthy of trusting and therefore worthy of being the source of your hope, and that one is Jesus Christ. We hold on to the hope that comes to us from him, and, and we do that by being diligent in our pursuit of understanding his nature, which gives us hope. This is all about God. This is all about knowing who he is, which is why the writer of Hebrews reminds us that we press on through the full assurance of hope, that it's rooted in knowledge. It's rooted in wisdom. It's rooted in understanding. It's rooted in the fact that God is exactly who he says he is. So I want to think with you this morning about the nature of hope, about how we get it, what it brings, what it's derived from, and what it's given for, because it has very real purpose in our life. And the very first thing we need to understand is that hope is the possession of the living. There's no hope in the grave. Okay? Ecclesiastes 9.4 says, For him who is joined to all the living, there is hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. Amen? The hope that is ours belongs to the living. Now, there's a couple of ways that it's important for us to understand. First of all, this hope is only found in Christ. And thus, those who are, spiritually, who are not spiritually alive have no hope. They will die in their sin, they will be judged, and they will be condemned to an eternity in hell. There is no alternate path to peace with God. So the first thing that we need to recognize when we say that hope belongs to the living is that hope belongs to those who are spiritually alive. Okay? You, you cannot have real hope if you are spiritually dead. This matters because everybody apart from Christ is spiritually dead. Every single one of us is born spiritually dead. So you can know without question that if you're dealing with somebody who has not been converted, who has not been called to life by the power of the Spirit, that whatever they're hoping in, it's not really hope. Whatever they're trusting in, it's not really worth the trust that they're giving to it. It's not really worth the, the confidence that they're placing in it. Um, it's an important consideration for life for you to have that realization. Ephesians chapter 2. Turn there with me if you would, please. Ephesians 2. And we're going to start at verse 1. You he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. So what is the descriptive terms that are used for those who are not found in Christ, who are not alive? They're dead. They're pursuing the things of, of the flesh. And they are by nature, what? Children of wrath. Understand this. This is the natural state of all mankind. We are born into this world spiritually dead and are by nature children of wrath. Reading on, but God, some of the best words in scripture, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. 
So this gives us the first thing that we really need to cling to about the reality of hope. We understand, first of all, that hope belongs to the living. It belongs to the spiritually alive. But there's also a sense in which hope belongs to those who are just physically alive. Because as long as there is life, there is hope. And I want to point out to you that something happened in your life. If you're a child of God, if you have been converted, if you have been made alive, something happened in your life that Paul was writing about here in Ephesians chapter 2 that said that before you were in Christ, you were just like them. You were dead. And you walked in the things that were dead, and you enjoyed the things that were dead, and you pursued the things that were dead, and all of that deadness was your birthright as a human being. But something intervened that was not you, and that is God. Because of His great love with which He loved us, according to Ephesians chapter 2, He made us alive while we were still dead. Nothing happened in us. We didn't instantly make ourselves alive. We didn't do anything to do it. This was the work of God. And I want you to recognize the truth that no matter how far somebody appears to be gone, if they're still on this rock sucking wind, there's still hope. Because God could work in them. And the evidence that you have to keep that in mind is that He worked in you. (laughs) Amen? This hard, rebel heart that once lived in you, God made alive. And you didn't have anything to do with it. You weren't smart enough to choose Him. You weren't good enough to get it right. You weren't able to make any works that made Him take notice of you. He simply moved in grace and called you to life. And that hope that saved you is the same hope that is available to every single person that's here on this planet. Every single one. As long as there is life, there is still hope. So never stop trying. Never stop preaching the gospel. Never stop proclaiming the truth that if they will just turn from their sin and turn unto Christ, they will be forgiven. And you say, well, what's the point? Because they can't do anything. It's the proclamation of the gospel that brings life, the scripture says. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. It's when God moves through the proclamation of the Word that life comes. It's His power that does it. It's His power that changes. And so the calling that has been placed on you is to recognize that you possess the hope. But you possess the hope because it's been given to you. And you possess the hope that you are then called to share with others so that they might also be called unto life, so that they might be pulled out of the darkness. So long as there is life, there is hope. Now, this promise of life, this promise of hope, this promise of truth, this promise of eternity, is rooted and grounded in something that goes beyond us. Hope is rooted and grounded in the faithfulness of God. If we're going to have hope that lasts, it needs to be anchored somewhere. Okay? So if, if your hope is going to be anchored in, in what the world anchors its hope in, then it's going to be pretty weak stuff. They change their mind. They change their position. They change what they tell you daily. And they expect you just to roll with the punches and forget what they said yesterday and go with what they say today as if it's the only truth that matters. Very soon, they'll, they'll have evolved memory holes that make all history disappear. If you can't recognize the reference, go read Orwell. The, 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 the idea is that if I can make you forget what I said yesterday, then I can have some veracity in your mind today so that you might believe me and hope in me just a little bit, and it's just as empty today as it was yesterday, and I'll give you something new tomorrow because I can't be trusted any further than I can be thrown. But what the scripture tells us is that God is always faithful. And his work in our lives proves that he is always faithful. So one thing that our hope is not only rooted in, but delivers unto us, is a knowledge of the faithfulness of God. 
It delivers us a confidence in the fact that our God can absolutely be trusted. And His Word informs it in our lives. So if you're going to be a person who tries to live your life without a daily steady intake of the Word of God, your hope is going to be weak. Because His Word is what grounds us in that hope. His Word is what informs us of what we ought to be hoping in. Psalm 119, verses 147 and 148 said, I rise before the dawning of the morning. I cry for help. I hope in your word. My eyes are awake through the night watches that I may meditate on your word. So the psalmist is saying, I trust your word. I think about your word. In fact, I think about your word so much that sometimes I can't sleep for thinking about your word. This isn't to say that when you can't sleep, you should go read your Bible. That's not bad policy. That's actually really good policy. But what the psalmist is attesting to is that he intentionally neglects sleep so that he can think and meditate on the truth of God. And there are times in your life where that is a really solid practice. I've talked to you before about fasting. I've talked to you before about abstaining from certain things. And I never really mentioned sleep. But it occurred to me when I was preparing this message that sometimes it's not a bad thing to to deprive yourself of just a little bit of sleep so that you might spend more time dwelling on the Word of God. So often we deprive ourselves of sleep for every other thing under the sun. Things happen, we're called to do things, we commit ourselves to certain things that extend us beyond our abilities, that extend us beyond our time, and the place that we always seem to cut it is sleep. But how often do you intentionally deprive yourself of sleep so that you might spend time in the Word of God, so that you might spend time thinking about His promises, so that you might spend time dwelling in His faithfulness? And this is what the psalmist is alluding to. A little further down in Psalm 119, at verses 165, it says this, Great peace have those who love your law, and nothing causes them to stumble. Lord, I hope for your salvation, and I do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies, and I love them exceedingly. So the more we know of God... The more we know of his character, the more we know of his word, the more solidly his word promotes the hope that sustains us. The more intentionally his word continues to derive in us or build in us the the hope that we need to know. Look at Psalm 131. Psalm 131, and we'll read the first three verses. I guess that's the whole psalm. (laughs) I knew it when I put it in there. I'm just a little sleep deprived. Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor are my eyes lofty. Neither do I concern myself with great matters, nor with things too profound for me. Surely I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with his mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. And what's he talking about, the, the hope that, that's being derived here? Well, the idea that's being derived here is that if the Word of God informs our hope and teaches us what we ought to hope in, the more we walk with God, the more time we spend in His presence, the more we begin to recognize that it is His person that sustains our hope. Intellectual ideas alone will not cut it. I know people that can quote vast amounts of Scripture and that can tell you all sorts of things about the Bible, but have no more of the mark of Christ on them than my shoe. You can know a whole lot of things and not know the one who is the reason for the things. And we need to be aware of this. A hope that is true and vibrant and anchored in Christ, walks with God. We know our God. And and this is the picture that's being given, like a weaned child. So there is a time when when a baby is an infant and, and mother is holding the baby. Typically, the only thing the baby wants is to be fed. There is always a need. There is always a cry. There is always a hunger. There is always a gimme, 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 gimme. Um. But as a child 
grows beyond that to where mother is not only a source of food but becomes so much more, then a weaned child can rest quietly in their mother's arms and just fellowship, just be comforted, just be present. And this is the relationship that the psalmist is talking about in the presence of God. He says, my soul rests in you and I hope in you, God. I I am content in your presence like a weaned child with its mother. There's not really any hunger for anything. And this is something we need to recognize about genuine hope. Hope is a real looking forward. It's a real promise of what God is going to do. But it's not necessarily something that is, that is this, this hungering, driving ache that leaves us unsatisfied and discontented in the moment. There is a tension here. Because the hope that's promised to us, we know it's not yet. And knowing that it's not yet, we can long for it, but still be content in the now. Like a weaned child with his mother, I am content in my father's arms. I am pleased to know that in this moment, I am held by him. And it it is enough. And yes, I want to be where he is. And yes, my my spirit longs to be in in my home for eternity. But at the same time, I am content in these days and in this moment and in this life. These days matter. And hope that is balanced and rooted in truth can stand in both of those places very comfortably. And this reality that we know that we are in this relationship with God that is transformative is is so calming to our spirits. Isaiah 8.17 says, I will wait on the Lord who hides His face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in Him. I will wait on the Lord who hides His face from the house of Jacob. So sometimes there are times when, when we are not necessarily feeling the presence of God. Not necessarily feeling the communion that we know we have, that we desire to, to dwell in. What do you do with that? Well, if your hope is only very superficial and only grounded and rooted in the, in the small things, I'm sorry I brought her attention to it, Hannah. <laughs> I didn't realize she could understand me yet. If your hope is, is just shallow, then in those moments when God hides his face from us, we become a little unsettled. We become a little unhinged. The truth is, is that sometimes God hides his face so that we reach out for him. Sometimes God hides his face so that we learn to just trust in him, which is what Isaiah is speaking about here. God, you hide your face from Israel, but still I will hope in you. I I will rest my hope in you, not because I see the evidence of anything going on, but because I know you. And this is the nature of hope that sustains us. We know our God. We know his character. We know his nature. We know who he is. Romans 15, 13 says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's because God's Spirit both creates and nurtures the hope that we long for. The hope is as divinely given as all of our other spiritual gifts. You're not going to attain the hope that you want until God himself gives it to you. And the vehicle, the the vessel by which he gives it, is the person of his Spirit. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And we're going to read verses 2 through 5. I don't think that's the whole book. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, starting at verse 2. We give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love, and your patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. So what is it that the Spirit brought? Power? Yes. 
Assurance. What's another word for assurance? Hope. We have the confident assurance that God is to be trusted. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives this to us. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting at verse 16. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father, who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. This brings a connection that we need to understand. Hope and comfort are two sides of the same coin. Hope looks forward. Comfort looks around. Hope anticipates what God is certainly going to do because he has promised it. Comfort acknowledges what God is doing because he is faithful. And it is important for us to recognize the reality of this because hope is going to be strengthened in affliction. Now, I understand that affliction is not something that most of us sign up for and say, Oh God, please let me suffer more for your name. Oh God, please break my life and break my world so that I can grow stronger in grace. Maybe we should, but few of us do. In fact, usually what happens is things go sideways. We don't end up with the life that we think we want. Things happen, things go wrong, and all of a sudden we're just done. That's not a confession of hope. And it's not a faithful confession of what God called us to be. It's something that we all struggle with. It's something that we all recognize happens to us and happens in us. And so perhaps understanding the connection between suffering and hope might help. So look with me at Romans chapter 5. And I want to give you Paul's laundry list. And there is a natural growth and progression that by God's grace results in hope. Romans chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So again, hope belongs to whom? The living. It belongs to those who belong to God. This hope is rooted in the fact that we have been given peace with God through the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's rooted in His work, it's rooted in His labor, and it's His to give. So we have this proclamation of hope. So there's the the overarching spiritual reality, is that the source of our hope is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we rejoice in that hope. We understand that there is a promise made which will be fulfilled when Christ returns. We understand there is a dynamic reality that is still out in front of us. And that God is faithful and that God will surely complete what He has promised as surely as He has completed what He had promised and has already come to pass. But I want you to pay attention to the next three verses. And not only that, But we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. Now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, who was given to us. So what Paul is attesting to is the fact that there is a natural process which occurs when the subject who is undergoing it is a living being, having been made new in the likeness of Christ. That means you, if you belong to Christ. So there is a natural process which is going to produce hope in the hearts, minds, and lives of all who belong to Christ. 
And that natural process is tribulation. (laughs) Producing perseverance, which produces character, which produces hope. Tribulation, perseverance, character, hope. This is a natural ongoing process. This is a very cleanly discernible, understandable method by which God gives us a steadfast hope in what he has promised. And he births it in us through the trials that come in our lives. He births it in us by the difficulties that we face. He births it in us by the things that we would undo if we had the power to redo what God has done. The very things that God Himself in His sovereign, perfect, excellent wisdom put in our lives to plant hope in us are 99% of the time the very things that would be the top of our list of things I would change if I were God. Which is why it's a good thing we're not God. Because what he's doing in us is better than what we would have dreamt. And ultimately what he's producing is a hope that is steadfast, that will last beyond the moment, and that will not be shaken no matter what we find facing us. Beloved, every single one of us knows somebody that has faced a trial in their life that has walked away from the faith. We all know people like that. Every single one of us, I'm I'm sure it wouldn't take you too long to go, ah, yep, okay, he's the one. She's the person. That's the guy. What is this confessing about the reality of their conversion? It wasn't real, right? John tells us in 1 John that they went out from us to prove that they were not of us. Because if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. He doesn't specifically talk about hope in that verse. But he is talking about what happens when faith is real versus when faith is not. The the scripture's not very ambiguous about this. When when people walk away from God and say, you know what, I'm done. I I don't want any part of it. I'm just tired of it. I'm, I'm through. What they're telling you is not that they have lost their faith, but that they never had any to begin with. What they had was an external means of making themselves feel good or being accepted by a group of people that they desired to be accepted by. But it wasn't faith. Because when God brings tribulation into the life of his children, it ultimately always makes them stronger. Now there may be times where even his children go, I can't do this, and they step back for a while, or they step out for a while. But God will, he has a hook in us, he will bring us back. He will not let any of his children fall away ultimately. But what you see in the process of this ongoing life is that the more we're pressed, the more we hope. And it makes no sense to the world, which is why they keep stepping on us. If they were smarter, they'd leave us alone. I'm glad they're dumb. Don't worry, I'll edit this out of the tape so they don't get the secret. I'm just kidding. (laughs) The more they press, the more we grow. The more we hope, the more we love, the more we know our God, because He is faithful in these days. And it's important for us to keep track of that. It's important for us to keep that clearly in our mind, because hope is designed to anchor us to Him. But we also receive hope by spiritual infusion. There is a means of hope being given to us by the fact that God himself just gives it. Paul alludes to it here in Romans 5. Hope doesn't fail because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts. God gives us love for him. Newsflash, until God gave you love for him, You hated him. You didn't decide one day to love God. God planted love in you. That's why John says we love because he first loved us. 
Often people interpret that to mean, well, he showed us that love by sending Christ, and that's true. But that's not the intention of that verse. If you love God, it is because God loved you first. He made you his own. He called you to life, and he planted in you hope. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We spent a couple of years together in 2 Corinthians, but it's been a while. So maybe you have forgotten something that we talked about at great length in the early parts of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, starting at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble, with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ Jesus. Now, if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope for you is steadfast, because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so also you will partake of the consolation. Ten times in four verses, Paul speaks about comfort or consolation. And in the context of all of this, it is the idea that we are comforted, we are consoled, we are given something to sustain us, and that thing translates into hope. But let me ask you this theological, theoretical question. Is there any need for me to comfort you if your life is perfect? Any place for comfort in your life at all if if everything is hunky-dory and exactly the way you want it to be? Not really. Everything's just copacetic. Everything's just good. I don't need your comfort. I'm happy. Save your comfort for somebody else. Don't waste your time on me. I'm good. You see, it's the places where we hurt that are an open door for God to pour into us that which we need most of all. It's the places where we're broken. It's the places where we are absolutely undone by sorrow, undone by by hardship, undone by misery, undone by tragedy. These are the places where God pours into us the hope and the comfort and the consolation that is ours in Christ. But I want you to catch the dynamic that's at work here. Because in the end, everything that we have as followers of Christ is given for us to share. There is a dynamic that's at work here, and it is the dynamic of sharing the comfort that you yourself have received. Okay? Do you notice what he says? We comfort you with the comfort with which we ourselves were comforted by God. And we know that if we are comforted, it is for your comfort and your consolation. So nothing that God gives you, including your hope, is just for you to hog to yourself and go, Oh, thank you, God. It's my precious. It's not just for you to store away so that you have something later. You ever have the experience of putting away a crop of potatoes or winter squash and you go to get it out and all of a sudden there's this smell that's, wait, something went horribly wrong with my preservation. Something went horribly wrong with what I was expecting to eat. You want to know a secret? When you take the blessings that God gives you, and try to hoard them for yourself, they'll always rot in the pantry. They will always go bad. Because God didn't give them for you to keep. He gave them for you to share. And when you share them, then you get to enjoy them as you use them, and God will pour more into you that you might share even more. 
This is the dynamic that's at work. It works with your physical blessings. It works with your money. It works with your time. It works with your energy. But beloved, understand this. It works with your comfort and with your hope as well. So recognize the truth that sometimes God brings you into the darkest of places so that he might pour comfort into you so that you will have comfort to pour into somebody else who is walking through dark places. That dynamic is always at work in us. It is always changing us as we are pouring out into the lives of others. This is how God lavishes comfort upon us. It's the comfort that comes in trials, and as you share what you have been given, it grows and it becomes the comfort that sustains you through the trial that you're enduring. And you share it with others who themselves also are strengthened and comforted with the same comfort that comes from God. This dynamic is the power of hope in us. Because so often the hope and the comfort, they come as the same thing. They come from the knowledge that God has given us this moment. This moment's going to pass. But what holds you together in this moment and lets you not lose your mind thinking, God, why can't you just let me die? Is the certainty that this moment has value in somebody else's life. That this moment has power even now. And that's what gives hope its anchor today. Beloved, if God had no purpose in us living this day with hope, he would have established all of this in some other fashion. But he gives it to us like he gives it to us so that we might actually rest in him even as we're pouring our hope into the lives of others even as we're giving to them what God has given to us, and it tastes different to the Spirit than somebody who says, you know what, I I just don't want to be here anymore. There's a certainty, a confidence, a rest. God, I'm content in this day. I'm anchored right here where you've got me, and I trust you. And we can do that because we know that the, the source of our hope is in the eternal promise of God. It is in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our hope is in His work and not ours. And His work has been finished. His work has been accomplished. We know that whatever God has promised us in Christ and through Christ is already secured. So there is absolutely nothing that can undo us today. That's why Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, I know that I'm confident that neither life nor death nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come, nothing can separate me from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can. And we hope in that because we know that it's all about Him. We know that Jesus is ascended to the right hand of the Father, is sitting triumphant on the throne of His glory. And we know that since He is there, nothing can assail us. The very worst thing they can do to you is send you home. It has no power over you. Death does not have any dominion in our lives. It is a toothless lion. It's a dead lion. So it's better to be a living dog. (laughs) Amen? In the end, we as followers of Jesus Christ know that everything we have is rooted and anchored in Christ, which is why the Scripture is so clear that denying the resurrection is fatal to us. 1 Corinthians 15. Look there if, if you would, please. 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 12, Paul writes this. Now, if Christ has preached that he's been raised from the dead, how do some of you among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. Makes sense. If Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith also is empty. Yes, and we're found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. 
For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. I'm going to read that again. If Christ is not risen, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Beloved, there is an appalling tendency among those who would tell you they're Christians, who will tell you without any apology or hesitation or shame that you don't have to believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead to believe and be a Christian. You just need to do the things he told you to do and live the best life you can. I want you to understand that when you're talking to these people, you're talking to dead people. You're talking to lost people. You're talking to people who themselves have no hope. So do not listen to anything they tell you. Every word that comes out of their mouth is rooted in lies. Don't listen to them. Don't drink it in. And certainly do not follow their advice. Because they will give you all sorts of advice about all sorts of things about your life and all of it is predicated on the premise that nothing God says is true because Christ is not really risen in their mind. And it's not important that you believe that he is. Beloved, this is the great divide. And we need to acknowledge the truth that our Christ is alive today, that he has risen from the dead, and that that ground is absolutely unassailable. We cannot compromise that truth no matter what. We must hold this line. For apart from the resurrection of Christ, there is nothing for us. If Christ is not risen, you are still in your sins. And there is no hope of heaven, and there is no hope of anything but God's wrath. Which is why they're quick to tell you that God really isn't all that angry with sin. Now, with our investiture in Christ, though, being united with Him in death and raised with Him in life, the hope of God is planted deeply in us. But we have to know the source of that hope. We have to acknowledge that that hope comes from God. We have to acknowledge that God needs to teach us who we are. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. Here's Paul's prayer for the church in Ephesus. Starting at verse 15, he says, Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. So here's his prayer. This is an awesome prayer. You can pray this for me if you want. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of His calling and what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of His power towards us who believe, according to the working of His mighty power, which He worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that age which is to come. And he put all things under his feet, and he gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So what Paul basically is praying for the church at Ephesus is that they would have a right understanding that Jesus is everything. And that he has been raised from the dead and that by his resurrection every good thing comes to those who belong to him. Beloved, that's my prayer for you. That you would recognize the truth that in Christ Jesus everything you need is satisfied. Everything. And if you don't have it, you don't need it. You may want it, but if you don't have it, You don't need it. At least you don't need it right now. Things may change and God may provide something different later. But it's still going to come from Christ. It's still going to come from what he has accomplished on the cross. It's still going to ultimately be rooted and grounded in the fact that Jesus Christ is alive. This is the power of the gospel. This is the hope that brings life to dead men. 
This is what made you alive, and this is what will continue to bring life through your word. Because in the end, all hope is future-based and other-driven. Everything that we hope in is rooted and anchored in the fact that God will bring what he has promised to pass, and we enjoy that knowledge with our hearts and minds focused there for the sake of those that are here with us. It's driven by our love for other people. It's driven by our love for those who we long to see saved. Look at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We're going to start at verse 18. Paul writes this. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. So there's hope even in creation. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself will also be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole of creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. And not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. And perseverance produces what? Character. And character produces hope. If, if we eagerly long for that which we do not see, we, we wait for it. We anticipate it. We know that God is going to be faithful. It's rooted in the fact that Jesus Christ did what he came to do. That he was promised for millennia before he came. And that what he came to do never altered. God never changed his mind. There was never one moment in all of eternity when this moment was not the plan and purpose of your God. God never had to look at something that somebody else did to his creation or somebody else did to his plan and go, Ah! He broke it. Now I got to do something different. Because that person, that's not a God. He may be strong. He may be powerful. He may be bigger than us. But he's not a God. God says, my will is always accomplished and nothing thwarts my will. Beloved, this means that our God subjected his creation, according to Paul in Romans chapter 8, to futility because he was doing it in the hope of a redemption which made us his more profoundly than we were simply by creation. Hope, beloved. Hope. Hope is laid in the very foundations of creation. It's laid in the very foundations of eternity. Our God subjected this world to futility in hope. In the hope of Christ. And if that's the root that is anchoring everything together, what does it tell us about his faithfulness that Christ has come and that Christ has triumphed? Is there anything that we dare not hope for that God has promised? Absolutely not. And more so, God calls us to hope so that we might know that what He's doing has come to pass and that there is some value in anticipation. We hope for what is not yet. And there's something good about that. There's something good in the waiting. Now, maybe this is just my twisted personality. I don't like to know what I'm getting for Christmas. I don't read the last page of a book when I start it. I don't peek at Christmas presents. I like the surprise. I, I like that anticipation. I think it's a good thing. Hope is about that. It's about that not yet. 
And in the moment of not yet, I can still sit and wait and be at peace with my God. It should not be something that warps us into ugliness. Proverbs 13, 12 says, Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but when the desire comes, it is a tree of life. And what does that mean? So how does that translate into our conversation about hope? Because if hope is not yet, and we're hoping, then why is it not making us heart sick? Well, it's because there's a knowledge that what we're hoping for is not supposed to be yet. There's a knowledge that this moment is powered by hope, but that this moment matters. We, we need to stand with our feet firmly in both places. The anticipation of what is to come and the comfort and the knowledge knowing that this moment matters. We both have to be here. Because this moment matters for the sake of those who are still here. What did Paul have to say about it? He said, it's better for me if I go, but it's better for you if I remain. In fact, he goes on to say, I'll probably stick around for that very reason. (laughs) I'll be here because it's better for you. And that promise of the assurance that one day I'll be with my Christ, it strengthened him in his days. It didn't weaken him. It didn't cut him prematurely loose from the moment that he was in. Everything that we are is rooted in the victory of Christ. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to start reading at verse 13. He's just gotten through talking about how we're comforted by in our tribulations and that our tribulations are things which refine us in the sight of God. And then he ends up with that triumphant statement in verse 12 when he says, things which angels long to look into. Verse 13 says, Therefore, because of all of that, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, Be holy. For I am holy. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct, received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead, And gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope are in God. Everything that we have is rooted in the victory of Christ. But it's rooted in the victory of Christ, and it's aimed at living in a way that is worthy of the victory of Christ. Again, it comes back to that having your feet planted in both places. If your hope is in being in the presence of God, then that hope should empower your life today to help you live in a manner which is worthy of being in his presence. You remember J.C. Ryle famously said that if a lost man ever got into heaven, he'd jump out the first window he ever came to. Because he wouldn't want to be there. Lost people don't love God. And they wouldn't love heaven, which is the presence of God unveiled. For a lost man, heaven would be hell. Ultimately, You can't trick somebody into being a Christian. But where hope takes root in us, we begin to learn that we're longing for the presence of God. And if we're longing for the presence of God, then it's going to have an impact on how we live here. Because if I'm actually longing for His presence, why would I waste this day in doing something or in living in a manner which is contrary to His presence? Amen? This is the power of hope in your life. This is what hope gives you. It gives you strength to face this day in a manner that honors Christ. Because we know where we're going. We know what we're headed for. We know what is waiting for us at the end. 
And we want to be found living in a manner that is consistent with that end. This is what Peter's driving at. And all of it's rooted in the fact that Christ is triumphant. And it grows when we share it. It gets bigger. It gets more powerful. The more you reclaim this truth, and the more you articulate this truth, and the more you live with this truth firmly in your eyes, that you're here in this moment for a purpose, and that God has called you to an eternity in His presence, the more you live that out, the more you live with that tension clearly demonstrated, the more it grows. The more it grows with others the more it plants itself in their lives. This is the dynamic that's at work. Look at Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, starting at verse 24. Paul writes this, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. The mystery which has been hidden from the ages and from generations, but which now has been revealed to his saints. To them, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end, I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. What's our goal? Our goal is to present every man to Christ redeemed. Now I understand that that's up to God. I understand that it's up to God who's saved and who isn't. I understand that God is the one who elects and that God is the one who calls the dead to life. That's all His work. But let me let you in on a little secret. He hasn't given me a list. He hasn't given you a list. So the way I see it, you have two options. You can either walk around this world looking at every person you see, and you get to be the judge deciding, well, that person's living a better life. Maybe I'll share Jesus with them. That person's pretty wretched. I'm going to leave them alone. In fact, I'm going to hate them. I'm going to talk bad about them. I'm going to be ugly to them. I'm going to be spiteful to them. I'm going to classify them. I'm going to deride them. I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure that none of them get in where I'm going to be. And our evangelism takes on that flavor. I promise you that's not a method that honors God. I think the only real course is to go about it like this. God hasn't told me who is. So I assume everyone is. I know that they're not. That's not my business. The scripture says the secret things belong to God, but to us belong the law and the prophets, to us and to our children. God has his business. He's given me the task of evangelizing the world. He's given me the task of sharing Christ as often as I can. So I go at it with the mindset that every single person I share Christ with is called. And if that brings fruit, so be it. And if it doesn't, so be it. It's not my business. It's not my concern. My job is to faithfully proclaim the gospel. My job as a pastor is to teach you to faithfully proclaim the gospel. And you do that in hope. You do that knowing that God is faithful, that he will always keep his word, that he will always keep his promises. Regardless of what you can see, hope is real. And it's powerful. It's transformative. It changes everything that it touches. And it changes us into the likeness of Christ so that we might bring him maximum glory. This is why John writes at the, in, in, in 1 John chapter 3, he says this. And, and we're going to end after this. So just listen. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Beloved, we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him. For we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself, just as he is pure.
So I want to leave you with a question this morning. And I want to ask you this very simple thing. If you have this hope in you, does your life consistently show it? And if it does not, where has your hope broken down? Because I promise you, if you think about it, you'll find that someplace you have transferred hope that belongs only to Christ into something of this world. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you give to us grace. And I pray, God, that you would show us our hearts and show us the places where we have ceased trusting and hoping in you and begun trusting and hoping in other things. God, help us to relax and to rest in this moment, to know that you are sovereignly governing your creation and that that includes us. Help us know, God, that in the midst of everything that we do and everything that we are, that you have ordained this moment and this day for a purpose. God, let us rejoice in that. Let us be content in this day, not sacrificing our hope, but also not letting a hope for tomorrow rob today of its power. God, keep us balanced that Christ might be honored. We ask it in his name. Amen.